Welcome to the 76th Quackcast. The real Quackcast. There's another one out there with the same name. It's a comic book podcast. I was first. Mine's better. And you can prove that this Quackcast is better because I mentioned with the 75th, I've been nominated for Best Health Podcast by the Podcast Awards. And starting October 17th, you can, like Chicago, vote daily for this podcast. As I also mentioned in the prior podcast, while you're at it, you can vote for Fun Employment Radio, you can vote for Legion of News, and The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. It would be fun, however, to have a Portland trifecta of award-winning podcasts. So give Fun Employment and Legion a look-see, will you? And as I mentioned in the other podcast, today is the 9th of October, on October 19th. Wednesday at 8 p.m. I will be in Boston for the national meetings and will be giving a talk that night along with Kimball Atwood, one of my co-editors at Science-Based Medicine, talking on acupuncture at Tommy Doyle's. So come up and feed my fragile ego by telling me how wonderful I am. But as always, that's not the purpose of this podcast. It is to listen to me talk about some supplement complementary and alternative medicine and the scam topic this time is the prostrate placebo i've seen to be talking a lot about the urinary tract this month this is just a coincidence i assure you golden showers are not in my future however as i slide into old age medical issues that were once only of cursory interest for a young whippersnapper have increasing potential to be directly applicable to a grumpy old geezer. Like benign prostatic hypertrophy, BPH. I'm 54. I'm heading into an age where I may have to start paying attention to my prostate. Not prostrate, as it is so often pronounced. Although an infection in the former can certainly make you the latter. So articles in my former days that I would have ignored, I read. JAMA this month has what should be a nail in the coffin of saw palmetto, demonstrating that the herb has no efficacy in the treatment of symptoms of BPH. The title of the paper is Effective Increasing Doses of Saw Palmetto Extract on Lower Urinary Tract Symptoms, a Randomized Trial. It demonstrated that, compared to placebo, saw palmetto does nothing. There have been multiple studies in the past with the more or less typical arc of clinical studies of CAM products. Better designed trials showing decreasing efficacy until excellent studies show no effect. There is the usual meta-analysis or two, where all the suboptimal studies are lumped together, the authors bemoan the quality of the data, and then, despite crappy data, proceed to draw conclusions from the garbage anyway. Meta-analysis. Garbage in, garbage out. The New England Journal study from 2006 demonstrated that saw palmetto was no better than placebo in the treatment of BPH symptoms, but it was suggested that perhaps the dose of saw palmetto was not high enough, as if anybody knows what the proper dose is, or that the patients were not treated long enough to demonstrate an effect. And the JAMA study hoped to remedy that defect. There is as is often the case, no good reason to suspect that saw palmetto would either benefit or harm the prostate. 
like many herbal preparations, it had a widespread use back in the day, when I had an onion tied to my belt, as was the style of the time. You couldn't get white onions because of the war. The only thing you could get was those big yellow... Uh, I digress. Quote. This is from the late 1800s. It is also an expectorant, controls irritation of mucous tissues. It has proved useful in irritative cough, chronic bronchial coughs, whooping cough, laryngitis, acute and chronic, acute catarrh, asthma, tubercular laryngitis, and in the cough of phthisis pulmonalis. Upon the digestive organs, it acts kindly, improving the appetite, digestion, and assimilation. However, its most pronounced effects appear to be those exerted upon the urogenital tracts of both male and female, and upon all the organs concerned in reproduction. It is said to enlarge wasted organs, man, as the breasts, ovaries, and testicles, while the paradoxical claim is also made that it reduces hypertrophy of the prostate. That's the wonder of alternative medicines. If it's big, it will make it small. If it's small, it will make it big. Possibly this may be explained by claiming that it tends towards the production of a normal condition. Huh? Reducing parts when unhealthily enlarged and increasing them when atrophied. End quote. A wonderful product that can tell if your prostate is too big or too small and compensate accordingly. At the end of the century, Edwin M. Hale, not the Rocky and Bullwinkle guy, and the homeopath, wrote a treatise on the topic, extolling its benefits on the prostate and other organs. And you will be happy to know that if you have testicular atrophy from being an old masturbator, saw palmetto will help. For no good reason that I can find, saw palmetto became popular only for BPH. As best that can be determined from the interwebs, there was a fad for natural medicines in the early 1900s, and saw palmetto became part of that fad. No clinical trials were responsible for the use. And, like acupuncture and homeopathy, there are many explanations for an efficacy that does not, in fact, exist. Now, the JAMA study followed 369 men for 72 weeks. They received either placebo or saw palmetto. They had it twice a day, and at weeks 24 and 48, the dose of each was increased. They were followed for subjective complaints using the AUASI score, which is a seven-question self-administered questionnaire. It has the following questions. Over the past month, have you had a sensation of not emptying your bladder completely after you finish emptying? Over the past month, and I'll quit saying that part, how often have you had to urinate again less than two hours after you finished urinating? How often have you stopped or started again several times when you urinated? How often have you found it difficult to postpone urination? How often have you had a weak urinary stream? How often have you had to push or strain to begin urination? I'm getting in trouble here. And finally, how many times did you most typically get up to urinate from the time you went to bed at night until the time you got up in the morning? Those are the seven questions. It is a well-validated tool for BPH symptoms, 
but it relies overmuch on memory and is subject to wishful thinking on the part of the test taker. I doubt I could ever accurately remember my urinary patterns over a month without writing it down. Actually, I don't even remember my urinary patterns today. There are also objective endpoints, things like peak urine flow, how fast you can pee, PSA levels, and post-void residual, how much urine is left in the bladder. Post-void residual. That makes me wonder again what they want done when the radio advertisement says void where prohibited by law. I wonder, would saw palmetto make that easier? And when it came to subjective measurements, there was a slight and similar improvements in both groups. Everybody, whether on placebo or saw palmetto, felt they got a little bit better. However, objective, anatomic, and physiologic endpoints were not affected in the least. No surprise. So much for the powerful placebo. Adverse effects were the same in both groups, with the only significant difference was that the saw palmetto group had more physical injury and trauma. So, saw palmetto will make you fall down and hurt yourself. So, is this the dreaded nocebo effect? Or just random badness that occurs as a result of being alive? Probably the latter. Based on the JAMA and New England Journal trials, and a similar trial in the Annals of Internal Medicine, it is reasonable to conclude that saw palmetto has no efficacy whatsoever in the treatment of symptoms due to BPH. More interesting, however, is what this article says about the so-called placebo effect again. This is yet another article that demonstrates that if you have a hard endpoint, if you have altered abnormal physiology or anatomy, placebo does nothing. Much is made about the brain scans of people receiving placebo, and I bet if we did brain scans on these patients, they would show changes when the patients took their medications. And to that, I would yawn. Doing anything to anyone, give a placebo, tickle their feet, there will be changes in the brain. And while in some studies increasing placebo amounts and frequency leads to increasing subjective effects, in this study, an increase in placebo dose did not lead to an improvement in the subjective outcomes. More real-world data to suggest that, outside of pain, there are no real placebo effects. Of course, I have bias. I have spent over 30 years in acute care hospitals. My patients have derangements of anatomy and physiology that, if not corrected or at least ameliorated, lead to death and permanent damage. Placebo ain't going to cure no endocarditis. It's not going to stop a gastric ulcer from bleeding. It's not going to reverse a stroke. And even if the patient feels better from the therapeutic relationship, if the anatomic physiologic abnormalities continue unabated, my patients are toast. I'm not even certain, by the way, that it can be said that placebos can cure gastric ulcers. There is little on the natural history of ulcers in the flexible endoscopy age. The only reference I could find suggests that patients who have ulcers found with x-ray screening and not a reliable way to diagnose ulcers and probably underrepresenting the incidence of the disease and who are not treated had a 24% cure rate, spontaneous cure rate, 
at six months and a 29% relapse rate at 24 months. Most of the placebo trials for treating ulcers followed patients around four weeks, and it did indeed have a higher cure rate in the placebo wing than seen in the natural history report, but the two are not directly comparable because nobody knows what the cure rate of gastric ulcers is in a no-treatment group at four weeks. Given the propensity of untreated ulcers to come and go and the unreliability of symptoms for diagnosis, unless there was a study that had a treatment group, a placebo group, and a no-intervention arm, I do not think it is reasonable to conclude that placebos cure ulcers. Especially given the New England Journal of Medicine review that suggested that placebo is no more effective than a no-treatment waiting arm in most clinical trials. Perhaps it is me. I do have some intellectual blind spots, like the anthropic principle. Every time I come across it in a cosmology book, I think, lame. It seems inane. I lack the imagination, or perhaps I am not stoned enough to recognize the significance of the anthropic principle. So too with the placebo effects. I bet placebo is probably more like quantum mechanics. The single slit experiment gives key insights into the fundamental nature of reality. But in the macroscopic world of day-to-day -day life, my electrons move about just fine to heat my house and run my computer. No need to worry about probability functions and interference patterns. I can throw potatoes at a slit all day, never see an interference pattern. Might make some good mashed potatoes that way. And so too with the placebo effect. Most of the practical effect, if there is any, is lost in the noise of the complexity of the illness, especially in the acute care hospital where I spend most of my time. On the Science-Based Medicine blog, Dr. Harriet Hall quotes Dr. Benedetti, a researcher in the placebo effect. The take-home message for clinicians, for physicians, for all health professionals is that their words, behaviors, attitudes are very important and move a lot of molecules in the patient's brain. So, what they say, what they do in routine clinical practice is very, very important because the brain of patient changes sometimes. There's a reduction in anxiety, but we know there's a real change in the patient's brain that is due to the, quote, ritual of the therapeutic act, end quote. They are equating the placebo effect, as I read it, with the ritual of the therapeutic act. Now, I don't disagree with that. I consciously try to accentuate just those interactions with every patient because I know my job as a physician is more than me find bug, me kill bug, me go home as much as I wish it were otherwise. But I do not think it is important for modifying any disease process which with I am involved. Grooming each other has salubrious effects on monkeys. As best I can tell, the placebo effect is no more than evolutionarily advanced nitpicking. It is when your mama kisses your boo-boo and makes it all better. Large swaths of the world rely on native healers, and their only tool in their armamentarium is the ritual of the therapeutic act. The only thing they have is a placebo effect from the patient-healer interaction. And across the world and throughout time, people have suffered and died in the thousands. You may argue it is not a fair comparison. 
these people also suffer from poor hygiene, no vaccines, malnutrition, no health infrastructure. But the United States has a group whose only health care is the placebo effect, relying entirely on the ritual of the therapeutic act. And despite being surrounded by the benefits of the Western societal medical infrastructure, they die faster and younger than those who don't participate in that care. They're called Christian scientists. At the end of the day, the practice of medicine is a practical endeavor. I am a builder, not an architect. I have to make my patients better objectively and subjectively. And the placebo is a tool that has little utility in my cool box. When my prostate grows to the size of a tennis ball, I'm going to go looking for a therapy that will shrink it, not fool me into thinking I can write my name in the snow a little bit better. Which reminds me of an old joke. Lady comes up to her husband and says, I want a divorce. He says, why? She says, well, because you wrote your name in the snow. He says, you want a divorce because of that? She replied, yes, it wasn't your handwriting. Since I wrote the first draft of this, at my quality council meetings at the hospital where I sit, we had a presentation on the use of pain control in the post-op patient. The hospital system in which I work is trying to improve post-operative pain control in patients, both to increase the patient's quality of hospital stay and to try and avoid some of the complications of using narcotics, which can have adverse effects like stopping breathing. So they've come up with this multimodal protocol for decreasing post-operative pain. Both pre-op, intra-op, and post-op, they are working hard to maximize both the pharmaceutical interaction of pain control and patient expectation and education. Because expectation and education at least are part of what helps modify the pain response to placebo. When people think they are getting a pain medication, they report a decrease in their pain. So we're working very hard at maximizing patient outcomes in a variety of mechanisms. Now what's interesting was the data. We had the data before and after the protocol was instituted. And patients were asked to rate their pain uh, as always controlled, sometimes controlled, and never controlled. And it's interesting what happened when we instituted the multimodal pain protocol. A certain percentage of patients, I think about a third, went from sometimes controlled to always controlled. The group that would be classified as never controlled, around 20-25% of patients had no budge in their perception of pain. Now the hospital worked really hard to maximize what could be argued as the mechanism of placebo effect in pain control, patient expectation and education. And interestingly, we made very little change overall in the number of people who had pain, but even most curiously, a big chunk of patients had no change in their pain perception whatsoever. So people say, oh, you can use the placebo effect to help decrease patients' pain, 
The study would make me wonder if there's only a small group of people, a minority of people, who are amenable to these effects in their pain control. So that ends the 76th QuackCast. You can write me glowing reviews on iTunes. You can come give me fawning adoration at my Skeptics in the Pub talk. You can go to moremark.squarespace.com where you can participate in my growing multimedia empire. Because remember, the world needs more Mark Chrislop. See you next time for the next QuackCast. Bye-bye and bye-bonds.